We're looking at uh, Genesis 12 this morning, verses 1 to 9, verses 1 to 3 in particular. That's on page 8 of the Bible in the seat back in front of you if you're using that Bible, if you don't have your own Bible here this morning. Genesis 12. As Rachel mentioned, the spiritual growth goal that we're focusing on this morning is outreach. And we're going to be in the book of Genesis through this whole Advent season for the next four weeks. And the text that we were scheduled to focus on this morning was back in Matthew 6. But since Advent hits early this year, here at the end of November, I thought we'd skip ahead and we'd get into Genesis so that we can be consistent through the four weeks of Advent. Um, and when Mitch Glasser comes next week, I'm not sure how much he'll talk about this text versus how much he'll talk about Hanukkah. So I thought I'd make sure we got into this text. This is such a central text to the big story of God's working in the world that I thought it couldn't hurt to spend two weeks on this text, if that's the way it turns out. Especially since our focus for Advent this year is going to be on appreciating afresh God's heart for the world. What went on in God's heart when he looked down at this world? When he saw the brokenness, when he saw the hopelessness, when he saw the conflict and the suffering, the meanness, the cruelty, and the rebelliousness against him. Did God harden his heart and say, ah, let them suffer, they deserve it, they made their bed, let them lie in it. No, God's heart was filled with compassion, so much so that he came down as a poor peasant baby, born into humble circumstances, to live among us, to experience the troubles and the heartaches of this life. And then he gave his own life to, to give us hope, to, to ensure that things didn't have to stay the way they were, to provide for rescue, to provide for salvation from all that's wrong in this world and in us. And during Advent, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate God's coming into this world that way, we also want to ask God to give us that same heart that moved God to come. As we look out at the world around us, the, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, the people we live among, as we look at the next generations growing up to take their place, what is our heart toward them? We've talked a lot about our vision as a church this fall. With God's passion, retooling, to reach, to welcome, to raise up the next generations. And we've agreed on five priorities to flesh out that vision and to make it possible. We want to retool our appearance, our Sunday mornings, our outreach, our approach to discipleship, spiritual growth, as well as our focus and our openness on, on and toward the Holy Spirit. But these priorities, these ministry changes and initiatives will only get us so far. And they won't get us very far if we don't first retool our hearts. If we don't let God give us his heart of, of compassion for the world and for the next generation. The heart that, that moved God to give up everything, to come down, to be born as a baby in a, in a manger. So as to reach out to us. Do you have that heart? Do I have that heart? How much of our, our comfort, how much of our preferences are we willing to put aside to join God in His ongoing mission to reach out and to embrace this world? 
So that's what we want to think about and to pray about and to focus on this Advent for the next four weeks. And we begin in, in Genesis 12 with God's call to Abraham. And in order to appreciate just how profound and amazing this event is, and to see what a turning point it is in human history, let's go back and recall the circumstances in which this little event took place. To do this, let me quickly walk us through the story of Genesis 1 to 11, the story of humankind up to this point as we find it in God's Word. It all began in the misty, far reaches of the past when a good and powerful creator made a good and wonderful world. God also created man and woman in his own image, and, and God generously put them in the world to enjoy it and, and to manage it as his stewards. But egged on by a crafty serpent, mankind doubted God's goodness. They, they sought to find their own way of living, and they rebelled against God. Their rebellion quickly plunged the world into chaos and into darkness, and, and the intricate web of relationships which held the world together began to unravel. Our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, our relationship with, with the earth itself, and even our own inner relationships within ourselves, all frayed and fractured. Adam and Eve hid from God in shame. They, they blamed one another. They were cast out of the garden to work the soil which had been cursed. Then Cain killed Abel. Then Lamech, a descendant of Cain, killed a young man and he gloated and he boasted about it. So, so evil did things quickly become that we read in Genesis 6 verse 5 that every inclination of the thoughts of people's hearts were only evil all the time. And so in the next verse we read, The Lord was grieved that he had made mankind on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. God couldn't let a world continue where the strong preyed on the weak, where the rich oppressed the poor, where it wasn't safe to go out without a weapon. And so God stepped in. God chose one man, Noah, to build an ark to save a remnant of, of humanity and of his creation. And then God destroyed the rest with a flood and God started over. But Noah and his sons were, were barely out of the ark when the cycle of sin began again. And so the readers of Genesis, we, as we read it, we realize what God must have already known. And that was that the mass destruction of the flood wouldn't work and hadn't worked to restore the creation to its original goodness. Because those who had come from the old world through the ark to the new world had brought the corruption of sin with them in their hearts. And so a cycle of sin began again. And this time the story ends with the Tower of Babel, where humanity in its, in its arrogance and, and, and in its hubris organized itself against God to build this giant ziggurat to reach to the heavens. The, the modern technological marvel of its time. And because they were bent together on constructing an advanced, self-sufficient society apart from God, their creator, God chose to scatter the nations across the face of the earth. What a bleak and a dark picture. By the time we get to Genesis 12, Humanity has tenaciously resisted all of God's efforts to turn them back to God 
to get them to do right and to live right. And so God has had to scatter them. And it seems like there's, there's no help, there's no hope. Nothing God has done has worked. God might as well give up. But, but we've already had a couple of hints in the story that God would never give up, that God's heart for the world was and is one of compassion and mercy. Back in Genesis 3, God had predicted that one day a seed, a child of the woman, would, would crush the head of that evil serpent who had first touched off the downward spiral of humanity by tempting Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And also in Genesis 8, after the flood, God made a covenant, a, a commitment, a promise with Noah that, that God would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And God set his rainbow in the sky as a reminder perpetually of that promise, of that commitment. So despite the, the dismal inclinations of humanity to tend from bad to worse, God was dropping these hints that that, that wickedness and hopelessness weren't the last word in the history of the world, but that God still had a gracious purpose in mind that he would bring about. But what could it be? Well, in Genesis 12, we begin to find out. In the midst of all this darkness, in response to the united hubris of mankind, which God had to dispel and scatter, despite all of humanity's rebellion and, and pride and self-confident arrogance and murder and evil and idolatry, God breaks in. God acts. As Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke puts it, the gracious God's broad new strokes to bless the earth come suddenly and brilliantly upon the canvas of sacred history. The narrator focuses on God's call to Abraham to be his means of blessing and, God, uh, and, and on Abraham's obedient step of faith which will change forever the course of history and open up a door of hope that will never close. In the midst of all this darkness and lostness, God singles out a single individual, Abraham. And God says, come with me. Trust me. Come to the land I'll show you and I will bless you and through you I will bless the whole world. Wow. Who was this guy, Abraham, or Abram, as he was known at the time? Well, we don't know a lot about him. We know that he came from Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, the area of Babylon near where the Tower of Babel had been. It was uh, an important center of moon worship, that location. And, and we don't know for sure whether Abram participated in this, though the names of his family suggest that he came from a family that had been pagan. Abram may have been a man of, of some wealth and standing. He seemed to have possessions, a number of possessions. Though um, Abram has no future because his wife Sarai is barren. And, and back then a man's life and a man's future depended on having a son, having a large family. Uh, sons to take over the family business, to, to um, take care of you when you were old. There was no social security. There were no 401k plans. Um, sons and daughters to perform the funeral rites when you died, which were so important in those ancient cultures to have, have, have the proper rites done at your burial. And, and then a son to inherit your wealth and your honor and to pass on your legacy. Those things were, were as important as life itself. And, and Sarah is barren, and so there's a real 
hopelessness. There's a tragicness to Abram's and Sarai's life. Their lifeless, their barren situation matches the state of the whole world at that time, you might say. What Abram and Sarai did have was what seems to be a close extended family, if you read the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. They had journeyed together um, with Abram's father Nahor um, and uh, Abram's nephew Lot and his brother, his brother's wife, their children, from Ur uh, to Haran, which is up closer to Assyria. And, and with no children of their own, um, this family was all that Abram and Sarai had. Then one day God comes to Abram, seemingly out of the blue, and God calls him to leave that family to leave his homeland, to leave everything familiar, and to go to a land that God would show him. Lord, that's not a lot to go on. <laughs> but in what may have been an act of reckless faith or perhaps of desperation, we don't know, Abram pulls up his tent stakes and he goes to this land. And so he begins his journey as a man of faith and his journey into a man of faith. And anyone who would follow God must learn to walk by faith like Abram did. And notice that this faith isn't just theoretical faith. It's not you sit at home in front of the TV on your couch faith and, and, and you know say what you believe as you go on with your merry life. No, the faith is about what you do with your life. It's about stepping out of your comfort zone of, of leaving your support system behind because you trust the God who's called you to follow. But that's another sermon. Because the point of this sermon isn't so much Abram's faith as it is God's gracious invitation to Abram. Listen to this promise, this blessing that God offers to Abram. It has seven parts. Seven, the, the uh, biblical number of completeness. One, I will make you into a great nation. Two, and I will bless you. Three, I will make your name great. Four, and you will be a blessing. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And seven, in the climactic favored position, the seventh position, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God in His grace is here promising to do the impossible. In this world of, of sin and darkness where despite all of God's efforts to work with people, people had just gone from bad to worse. And, and in the life of Abram, childless and futureless and hopeless, God is offering to bring incredible life and hope and blessing both for Abram and through Abram to the whole world. So why? Why does God notice Abram? Why does he pick him? Why does he single him out? Is it because Abram deserves it? Is it because Abram somehow earned it? Is it because God was looking for someone to be Santa Claus to and, and Abram had been more nice than naughty? Or, or is God like a big cosmic Oprah just looking for some needy person to, to shower a surprise gift on and it will make, make for a great TV segment? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why God chose Abram. Chose Abram, because maybe, 
Oprah and Abraham, let's get this straight. Maybe the point isn't about Abram. Maybe the point is about the character and the purposes of God. But what the Bible does tell us, what the Bible does make clear, is that God doesn't bless Abram just for Abram's sake. But rather, God blesses Abram for the sake of the whole world. Abram is blessed to be a blessing. And as the story of God unfolds, we see this played out. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob and his 12 sons. Then they father the 12 tribes of Israel, whom Moses later leads out of Egypt. God forms these 12 tribes in the desert into Israel, a, a new nation. God teaches them how to live, how to govern themselves, how to, how to uh, live wholesome and right lives. And then God comes to be present among his people to lead them, to guide them. And as the story unfolds for this new people of God, we see surrounding peoples and nations being blessed through Abraham's descendants. Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, and many others of David's mighty men, the widow of Zarephath, whom Elijah stayed with during the famine, Naaman the leper from the country of Aram, whom Elisha healed of his leprosy, the city of Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah, Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, Darius under the influence of Daniel and his three friends. And then, of course, Jesus came from Israel and, and died for the whole world. And Jesus instructed his apostles to invite all peoples into this new salvation that he purchased and accomplished so that all who have faith in Jesus are now children of Abraham. God has indeed blessed all nations through Abraham, and God is still doing it today. God blessed Abraham so that Abraham would in turn be a blessing to others. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and that's always God's way. Baseball fan Mike Herman tells a story about how all of his life he'd been going to major league game, games trying to catch a souvenir baseball. I know when I was a kid, my grandfather would take me in the summer to Yankee Stadium, and I'd always bring my glove just hoping to catch that ball, right? Well, as an adult, Mike Herman still hadn't caught his ball, and he was still hoping and trying. And, and one time he was, um, he was there when the St. Louis Cardinals were... Um, taking batting, batting practice back in the days of Mark McGuire. And um, as Herman watched this practice happen, he befriended a five-year-old boy there who was also hoping to get a ball. His name was James, and, and James was trying hard to pronounce the players' names, and he politely asked them for a ball. Mr. Timlin, Timlin, can I have a ball, please? And before I knew it, Herman says, my mission was to get a ball for James. For about 20 minutes, I told him the names of the players who, who had a ball near the fence that we stood behind. And the players would turn and they'd smile to James but, as he tried to say their names, but, but still no ball. Finally, I told James that he could have my ball if I caught one. I had been unsuccessful in catching a ball for almost 28 years, so it felt like a safe promise. Well, Herman concludes, I wouldn't be telling this story if you know what happened five minutes later. I caught a ball, and yes, I gave it to James, 
I wonder how often God waits to give us something until we're willing to give it away. We, like Abraham, we, children of Abraham, have been blessed to be a blessing. Yet we easily forget that, don't we? We live in this world which is always drumming into our heads, it's all about you. And so church, like everything else, can become about meeting our needs, what we like in a worship service. Uh, who's there to pray for us and to encourage us when we're down? We're so conditioned to think this way as a culture that we almost can't help it, but, but God is, is here to remind us through His Word, through His Spirit, that that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we're not just blessed, but we're blessed to be a blessing. Former Anglican Archbishop William Temple expressed what the church is to be about when he said, the church is the only cooperative society in the world which exists for the benefit of its non-members. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, the church is only the church when it exists for others. That's the heart of Jesus. This church, CBC, is placed here by God for the benefit of those who aren't part of CBC. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And if you've ever tried living this way, then you know that this is even better than just being blessed to be blessed. It was for Abraham. Read his story. He, he grew up to be a wealthy and respected man. And, and just imagine the stories he had to pass on to his children and his grandchildren. Not to mention the fame ever since and the legacy that he's left behind. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing and it was totally worth it. I've experienced this myself in, in a lot of ways. Let me just give you one. When I was in college, I was blessed with several of the best friends that I've ever had. Yet, we all felt a strong call from God that we were not at Bucknell University just for our own benefit. So, or rather, we were there to do God's work. We were there to be a blessing to others. So many times we gave up the chance to hang out and to enjoy one another in order to reach out and to minister to others. Sometimes we did it together, but, but many times we did it apart. But we always had this sense of camaraderie. We, we knew we were in it together. We would, we would pray for one another. We, we, we just had the sense that we were doing ministry together. And when we did just have time for ourselves to spend with one another, those times were all the richer as a result. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't have done it any other way. We were blessed, but, but we weren't just blessed for ourselves. We were blessed to be a blessing to others. And CBC, if we are going to succeed, if we are going to, to go forward as a church in all that God <coughs> has for us, in all the exciting plans that are before us, it will happen to the extent that we live out that attitude of being a blessing. As we make decisions as a church, as we consider everything from the, the paint color of our walls to uh, how we spend our money to, to what ministries we start or which ones we end, we've got to ask not, what do I want? What do I like? But what choice 
will make us a greater blessing to others. That's why when we're asking you today to evaluate some possibilities for our logo, we're not asking which do you like better, because that's not the purpose of our logo, to have a little cute thing that we like. Our, the purpose is to represent our church to, to those we're seeking to reach. But having this attitude of being a blessing to others applies far beyond these practical choices that we're making as a church. More than anything, it, it applies to our hearts. So when you see that new person show up at church and you're deciding in your mind if you're going to go over and introduce yourself to them, and when you decide whether to invite that person that's been on your heart out for coffee or, or over for dinner, and when you think of that person at work or at school or that neighbor who's going through something tough, ask yourself, is this about me getting blessed? Or is it about me being a blessing? And you know, I'll bet you $100 if you go out and you visit 100 other churches and, and you're looking for ones which have contagious joy and enthusiasm, things are happening there. Do you know which ones will be the top ones? Most definitely, it'll be the ones who are less caught up with their own needs and wants. It'll be the ones who instead have a vision for reaching out and blessing others. And I think we get that as a church. But we can do better. The sky's the limit to the heart of God. You know, even psychologists will tell you that this is true. I, for example, um, read a study by Bernard Rimland, the director of the Institute of Child Behavior Research. And this study found that the happiest people are those who help others. Each person involved in this study was asked to list the 10 people that um, they knew best and to label them as either happy or not happy. And then after they did that, they were to go through the list again and they were to label each one as selfish or unselfish with the follow def following definition of selfishness. Selfishness is a stable tendency to devote one's time and resources to one's own interests and welfare and an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. And in categorizing the results, Rimland found that all the people who were happy had also been labeled unselfish. And he wrote that those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to actually be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. That may seem very counterintuitive to the world, but not a surprise to God. Jesus has been telling it to us all along. And that being the case, God must be very happy indeed. Because as we prepare for Christmas, we, we remember how God put aside God's own wants and desires to come down to the sorry, broken world to help us to save us, to rescue us. That's God's heart. God's heart is to reach out. It's to bless others. And in today's text, we begin to learn that God doesn't want to do it alone. But rather, beginning with Abraham, God has called the people to himself and has invited us to have that heart too and to join God in this great adventure.
This Advent season, may we come to have that heart, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus in greater measure. So we have a two-fold challenge for you today. First, this Advent season, will you take time to ask God to give you this heart in increasing measure? God's that that you'd have a heart of grace and compassion, a heart that wants to be a blessing, especially to the next generations. Because without this heart, we're, we're never going to hit our vision as a church. The Catalyst team would like to urge you to pray, and in particular to set apart time to pray on Fridays. I mean, pray all the time. Pray all week long. But we'd like to think about Friday as one day where we know that we're all praying together about this. And you can pray on your own if you want, but we'd also hope some people will get together to pray about this together. And we'd like to see at least three groups of people praying together. Um, a couple of them are in your bulletin. One on Friday mornings, one on Friday at lunchtime, and one Friday evening group. Um, just for these next four Fridays of Advent. And uh, in the bulletin talks about, there's already a group who's agreed to meet from 12 to 12.30, at CBC on Fridays. And there's also an evening group which already meets at the McClure's house at 6.30 on Fridays. And you'd be welcome to join that group. Um, or to start another group um, at a different time or a different place. And so if you'd like to be in a group or you'd like to start a group, then let me know and we'll publicize it so that others can know about it and join in. So let's be praying about this over these next coming weeks. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge, Anne is going to come and share with us. 